Code Pink by Edmunds Revolution. I'm Leonardo Flores of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. On today's program, we're honored to be joined by two Venezuelan vice ministers. On the first segment, Code Pink's Terry Madsen and Popular Resistance's Margaret Flowers interview William Castillo, Venezuela's vice minister for anti-blockade policies, about the devastating economic war in Venezuela. In the second segment, Terry speaks with speaks with Venezuela's Vice Minister for Europe, Ivan Gil, about the case of Novo Banco, a Portuguese bank that has frozen over $2 billion in Venezuelan, Venezuelan funds for years, money that would otherwise be invested into the health system. But first, some news. In Bolivia this week, social movements were out in the streets for two purposes. They were celebrating the Day of Decolonization on October 12th, also known as the Day of Indigenous Resistance in many other Latin American countries. They were also out on the streets to defy an attempted right-wing coup. Bolivia's right wing had called for a worker lockout and for street closures in an attempt to destabilize the government. During the coup in 2019, right wing shock troops used these street closures to target social and indigenous leaders. This time around, a booby trapped roadblock in the eastern city of Santa Cruz almost killed a 26 year old motorcyclist. In recent days, the right wing has gone after the indigenous Huipala flag, a symbol of the indigenous peoples of the Andes, but for the most part, their protests fizzled. Instead, labor unions and indigenous groups rallied around the country against racism and to defend their democracy. In Colombia, two young Venezuelan migrants, a 13-year-old and an 18-year-old, were murdered by paramilitary forces after being accused of thievery. The children had been held by, the local, by local store owners who had planned to turn them over to police, but instead unnamed men took the children and they were later found, later found dead on a major roadway. Retired members of Colombia's military have been linked to the crime. In Guatemala, indigenous and social movements rallied against discrimination and poverty on October 12th, the Day of Indigenous Dignity and Resistance. 59% of Guatemala's population is under the poverty line. This anniversary of struggle and resistance is bearing, being carried out in the middle of a global pandemic in which indigenous people are the most affected due to the catastrophic management of President Alejandro Giamatti's government, which has worsened hunger, poverty, exclusion, and the structural racism of the Guatemalan state, said the Maya Wakiobkej National Convergence. Apologies for the mispronunciation. Indigenous leader Andrea Ixchiu said that the simple existence of indigenous peoples constitutes an, act, an expression of resistance. They have not been able to colonize our dreams. Our action is our discourse, she said. In Argentina, where October, October 12th is known as the Day of Respect for Cultural Diversity, indigenous peoples mobilized in front of Congress. Their main demand was an extension of a territorial emergency that would ban evictions and displacement of the lands they live on. The extension would grant a set of land rights for territory traditionally inhabited by indigenous communities. According to Argentina's Institute for Indigenous Affairs, there are 1,760 indigenous communities in Argentina, of which 1,015 don't have formal land rights. 
Up next, we have Code Pink's Terry Matson and Popular Resistance's Margaret Flowers with Venezuelan Vice Minister William Castillo. You will hear an interpreter instead of Mr. Castillo's voice. Vice Minister William Castillo will speak about Venezuela's anti-blockade law. So this anti-blockade law is a special law and allows for exceptional measures to be taken, special measures that can be uh, taken to counter the blockade. Many companies, including U.S. companies uh, from various sectors, from energy sector or trade sector, technological sector, want to do business with Venezuela. They want to work with Venezuela, you know, as it is the case with any other country in the world. But they are afraid of uh, the executive orders. They believe that if they do business with Venezuela, they will be sanctioned also, or they will be persecuted, or that their assets will be frozen in the financial system, because this is how it is established in the executive orders. So this law allows for a protection of the identity of companies, also legal protection. Venezuela uh, will accompany any com uh, company working in Venezuela and will give support, will, will give legal protection, and also will protect their identity so that they can work with Venezuela. A series of incentives and uh, other benefits uh, have been established for those companies wishing to work with Venezuela because what we look uh, for is to reactivate economic sectors that have been affected, such as the oil sector, gold sector, um, mining sector, also agribusiness sector, because there is a keen interest in developing agricultural production more than third for the 75% of our territory can uh, um, can work with uh, agricultural projects. And due to the sanctions, most of those projects have been uh, paralyzed. So the first objective of this law is to look for pathways uh, jointly with the private sector and other governments that are partners of Venezuela that have supported Venezuela, for instance, the Russian Federation, the government of China, who have uh, sold at a very good price uh, vaccines to Venezuela, who have delivered medical equipment to Venezuela to help in this situation. So what we, look, what we want to do is to stimulate to boost economic relations. And the second part of the law, is uh, where these resources are going to be allotted to. This law wants to guarantee national development and human rights that have been violated, the right to food, the right to health care service, the right to a free sexuality by women because uh, also the exports of uh, medicines and drugs were uh, affected, for instance, for the um, gynecological tests for women. That also was affected, and that affected women's rights. And also, all these resources that will be obtained thanks to special uh, agreements are going to be destined to improve 
the Venezuelan income, the workers' income, to strengthen public services which have been affected. Also, uh, um, power, uh, electricity, water, transport, telecommunications, and then to give a place for the recuperation of uh, the purchase and power of the Venezuelan family and to boost the national economy. So this is a law within an economic strategy, within a economic program, and we have to pass this law to offer guarantees to tell everyone that Venezuela, the Venezuelan's government is committed with this strategic um, guideline. It is committed with all the economic actors, private or public, of all around the world wishing to participate in the economy, our recuperation and we recovery. And we are going to do this in the midst of the sanctions. We are doing it already. So in closing, Terry, with this part, I want to say that even though Biden's administration started in January this year, has not uh, intensified the sanctions, he hasn't reduced them either. And he has, so to speak, frozen the sanctions, but he has reduced the aggressive narrative against Venezuela. The day-to-day -day narrative that uh, we saw under Trump, well, and we know that uh, threats are destined to scare investors from an economy, but Biden has reduced that narrative, even though he has not said clearly that he is committed in normalizing diplomatic relationships, which we have asked several times. Uh, the president has asked for that. We have said that we are ready to talk directly with the United States to re resume the diplomatic relations that have been suspended, and then to go back to a relation based on respect between two sovereign states. This is the only condition Venezuela has asked to normalize its relations. And well, they have not increased the sanctions, but they haven't reduced them either. So we hope that uh, the U.S. administration, the U.S. government, and that reflection that they are under, they have said publicly that they want to think twice about the sanctions. And we hope that we will go back to the international law respecting Venezuela's sovereignty and uh, rec recognizing also Venezuela's right to its uh, economic development. Right. And all of those are you know, so many important um, points that you made, Vice Minister. And I think it's important to understand very clearly that what the United States is doing, these unilateral coercive economic measures or UCMs, we call them sanctions, are illegal under international law. So everything the United States is doing in Venezuela, including political intervention, military aggression, all of this is illegal under international law. So Venezuela has every right to use whatever tools it has within its power to fight back against this. And it's important to understand how devastating this economic blockade is on the country of Venezuela, as you've mentioned some, but you know, Elena Duhan, the, the UN rapporteur, uh, said that you, that Venezuela is currently operating on 1% of the income it had prior to the sanctions. So um, this is a country that provides free health care, education, has a food program, an incredible 
housing program, you know, Venezuela has a population of 32 million people. The United States has more than 320 million. Venezuela has already built and housed uh, 3.7 million families. They built 3.7 million units of social housing. We in the United States have less than 1 million units with 10 times the, the population. So tremendous work that Venezuela has been doing. You, you mentioned the fact that businesses won't, you know, or fear U.S. retaliation if they do business with Venezuela. This is a well-founded fear, as we've seen companies like Rosneft, the, the Russian oil company targeted by the United States for doing business with, uh, with Venezuela, um, dominated, you know, financial institutions that are dominated by the United States have also uh, refused to process financial transactions. So uh, a, 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 a well-known one is when Venezuela recently was purchasing vaccines to COVID-19 through the UN's COVAX program, which is designed to help countries like Venezuela, UBS, the Swiss bank, would not process the financial transactions so that Venezuela, which had the money, could not pay for those vaccines. This is just some of the tangible ways that these UCMs impact people in, in Venezuela. And so my, you know, and also blocking investment in industries, um, when I was there in 2019 and uh, met with the, um, the person who was the head of procuring uh, medical and you know, pharmaceuticals, uh, spoke about how the pharmaceutical industry was thriving prior to that in Venezuela, but because they couldn't get the precursors, the things that needed to produce the pharmaceuticals, um, really decimated that industry. We, as you mentioned, same thing with agriculture, getting the inputs, keeping the, the oil company, you know, the refineries running, getting the equipment for that. All of this is, is blocked by this economic blockade. So um, one thing uh, that other countries have been trying to do is to work around these institutions that are dominated by the United States. So finding alternative ways of doing business outside of these institutions, is that something that Venezuela has uh, been looking at? Uh, how, how are you able to bypass the U.S. dominated you know, financial institutions and, and do business with these other countries? What we have done uh, with the anti-blockade law and President Nicolas Maduro said it very clearly, and probably it's not easy to understand abroad, but he said that the visa negotiations have to take place in secret, in silence, because if we announce that we're going to do something with a given company, well, immediately after there was a measure approved by OFAC, and punishing that company or that sector. So we have done everything in silence. All these operations have been secretly conducted and protected by a confidentiality contract. We have also resorted to outsourcing. We have had to enlarge our suppliers, our providers, because when we can I mean, when we can negotiate, it is much more expensive because we have to look for other uh, traders and uh, we have to go through all an, a whole network to buy uh, raw materials for medicine, for instance, which is not the case in any in other countries that have a bid process and they just simply buy directly from the suppliers. But uh, in our case, we have had to buy 
the three companies all around the world, medicines in different countries, but then the country says that officially they cannot sell those medicines to us. First, they need to sell those medicines to a third party, and that third party then delivers the medicine. So this is hard to believe in any other country where we have a, so to speak, uh, freedom of free uh, trade. But we have denounced this, not only before the ICC, uh, also with the World Trade Organization because of all the sanctions and the United States, well, they um, have uh, hindered that debate because it is about Venezuela. And we went to the World Trade Organization and since they have a veto power, the United States uh, prevented the discussion from having place. And uh, this is, it is, uh, everything that they are doing is illegal. They are violating international law and they are also violating the rights of the companies and states and these violation is affecting the civil population, the general population. These are not targeted measures because they say they are targeting only um, public officers or Venezuelan president. It is not the case. And I have to repeat here that President Trump, he put a prize on Maduro's head. How can you talk about legality or respecting international law in the case that a president puts a prize to another president's head. So this is this is a worldwide policy. A president that is putting a prize to another president is just declaring open war against that president. And what the United States has done is to declare an um, invisible multi-layer war against Venezuela. And uh, sometimes we say that we compare that war with the uh, bombs, but th those bombs are falling over um, public uh, wages. These are bombs against oil refineries, against, against food, against uh, populations. Health. So this is the reason why we need to resort to this kind of mechanisms with this law. Um, we cannot speak openly or freely about this because we will be putting at risk all these operations. But what we have done is to strengthen the economic partnerships. This is uh, something that we have said and do open. Everyone knows that we have strengthened our relations with the countries that are ready to face this blockade because they are also subjected to other blockades such as Cuba, Iran, Russia, even if these are not sanctions against their countries, there are a lot of sanctions against uh, the old state Russian company or techno tech companies in China or uh, Turkish companies that have been sanctioned. There are companies in 27 countries, including the United States, Colombia, Mexico, uh, Germany, Switzerland that have tried to do business with Venezuela and that have been included in the, in the, on those sanction lists. So that is what is happening. Margaret, you said something very important, and I want to comment on that. In other, other countries have taken similar measures. Each country is looking for a way of going about the uh, sanctions. 
the Republic Public, Popular Republic of China passed uh, two months ago an anti-sanctions law. But uh, given China's importance in the world's economy, it's different. The United States has said that any sanctions against China is going to be uh, contested by American companies. Because of China's importance in the economy, of course, the situation is different. Venezuela has not the same economic uh, importance to uh, approve a reciprocity measure because we do not have an influence on the world trade. We do not control the system of uh, um, bank uh, transactions. Uh, Cuba also have a law, anti-blockade law, and uh, the Iran also have, they have taken uh, measures in order to counter and overcome the very serious impact of the sanctions against block uh, against Iran that has been blocked by 40 years. But the most important thing here is that the international experts and the five rapporteurs of the United States wrote a letter to Secretary Blinken asking for um, explanations about the sanction and denouncing the death of children that. Uh, we're going to be uh, adopted in Italy and in Argentina. And the operations of those children were paid by the Venezuelan state. And when they froze Citgo, then when they seized the Citgo and Monomeros, the operations of those kids couldn't be paid for. And several of those children died because the US uh, froze those assets that could have saved these children's lives. So the world is aware of the criminal nature and inhumane nature of those policies, and we keep on denouncing them to the, the whole world. Yeah, that's, that's an important point that people need to understand. It's why we call our campaign sanctions kill, because they are just as deadly as dropping bombs uh, the Center for Economic and Policy Research um, did a study just looking at 2017 to th 2018, a one-year period, and found that the U.S.'s economic war contributed to the deaths of 40,000 Venezuelans. That's 40,000 people in one year. And as you mentioned, you know, people being stranded. I, I know that hundreds of patients with cancer who've been sent outside of Venezuela to get the care that they need are stranded because... Venezuela doesn't have the mechanism to pay for their care. These are real human costs. And so often in the United States, we hear about these humanitarian exceptions and they don't work. As you said, the, the Elena Duhan found that. Our report that we did recently on the impacts and consequences of US sanctions found the same thing. These humanitarian exceptions don't work. And so people are directly impacted. I just wanted, I know we don't have much time left, so I do want to say to our audience, you know, particularly people living in the United States, you know, we have a responsibility to demand that the Biden administration reestablish diplomatic relationship with Venezuela. There's no reason why we, we don't have that and demand that we immediately end the sanctions. This is something that the president can do. He has the power to lift this economic blockade, which is actually putting us in the United States at civil and criminal liability because they are uh, illegal. So, so we need to make these two demands to reestablish diplomatic relationship and to end these 
economic measures immediately. I just want to follow up on that comment. It's, and it's so true. Um, the silence of sanctions is misleading to U.S. citizens as a form of warfare. It's like we're not dropping bombs on the nation. There's no troops on the ground. How bad can it be? It's out of sight. It's out of mind. And, and in my opinion, and I'm sure in Margaret's as well, that makes them even more dangerous. The silence of them and the, the out of sight, out of mind philosophy behind them makes them even more murderous and more dangerous. One of the things you mentioned earlier, Minister Castillo, was that the Biden administration's narrative, uh, foreign policy narrative in general, I would argue, but towards Venezuela has changed or is less aggressive in tone and in vocabulary, but in practice is the same. It's not advanced, but it's not retreated in any way, shape or form. It is the same as the Trump policy. And I think that's really important uh, for our audience to understand that, that just because the tone has changed doesn't mean the practice has changed. It's just a, a new face and a new voice, but the same policy. Yeah. And so re regarding this U.S. policy towards Venezuela and particularly um, in relation to the Venezuela dialogue that's been occurring here in Mexico City since August, I think you just finished round three this past week. What do you see uh, the coming out of this dialogue? Is a lifting of sanctions? I mean, I know that's probably the number one request. Um, but there's two things specific to the dialogue. If you can comment on them, that'd be great. I understand if you can't. Um, what the hope is with the United States and also specific to, uh, to individuals and assets um, affected by the sanctions. Can you comment on the Alex Saab case and where... Uh, where he stands at this point. I know he has still not been allowed to be part of the, of the uh, dialogue team here, the government's dialogue team here. He's still sitting in prison in Capo Verde. So whatever you can comment, and I know that's a, you know, it's a, it's a quiet subject in the media right now, the dialogue, and, and with good reason. I have the privilege and the responsibility of being part of a, the Venezuelan delegation participating in this dialogue, and uh, I can um, repeat here the president's open and clear position that dialogue needs to deliver clear and meaningful advances in the lifting of sanctions and in the recovery of resources and, and Venezuela's assets recovery. So, of course, when we go to this dialogue, we bear in mind the economy and the Venezuelan's welfare. And we are ready to move forward in other topics which are a priority for the position. As far as the U.S., which is the real boss of this extremist opposition, will engage with them to also make important and meaningful steps. But what Venezuela cannot accept, what the government of Venezuela cannot accept is the uh, conditions, right, being imposed. So, or for Venezuela to, or the government to take measures before the negotiation process. No, it is about negotiating. 
And in the, in the framework of that negotiation, both parties need to move forward in a coordinated manner according to an agenda that has been jointly agreed upon. So, the woman sits on the economic agenda. We have a set that it's important for us to find resources. First, to finish with the vaccine rollout, we have made progress there. Venezuela, with its own resources, uh, will before October and November, will have vaccinated more than 50% of the population, and before the end of the year, 70% of our population will be vaccinated with uh, uh, both uh, jabs. And this has been made possible thanks to the help of uh, some uh, countries. But uh, we still require resources for our hospitals, our equipment, and treatments. So our priorities are to recover our resources, to normalize the economic guarantees for the benefit of our population. And of course, we are open uh, to other measures within the agenda. Our priority is Venezuela, and we hope that in the third round, we will be able uh, of making specific announcements. And, uh, this will depend, of course, on Biden's will, because he is the opposition's boss. And uh, we uh, know that any kind of measure that the opposition will propose is to be approved by the U.S. But in our case, we are a sovereign government. We have our people's support, and uh, that's how we participate in this dialogue. So I hope that in the next days and then the next round we will be able to move forward in that agenda thank you to terry margaret and the vice minister to our listeners you can join the campaign to call on the biden administration to lift the sanctions on venezuela by going to www.codepink.org venezuela you are listening to code pink radio coming to you through pacifica radio's wpfw in washington dc and wbai in new york city We'll be back after this break with another Venezuelan Vice Minister, Ivan Hill. Parará y tan subestima 
Amarrado está este canto, disque pa' amenizar Con el cocu y unos ramazos lo vamos a estimar Pa' que aprendan a respetar That was La Alborada Guiando by Sandino Primera. Welcome back. I'm Leonardo Flores of Code Pink's Latin America team. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Up next is Terry Matson speaking with Venezuelan Vice Minister Ivan Hill. Once again, you will hear an interpreter instead of the Vice Minister's voice. Since 2017, the private Portuguese bank Novo Banco has withheld roughly 2 billion U.S. dollars belonging to the Venezuelan well in state's economic and social development bank known as BANDES, B-A-N-D-E-S. BANDES is requesting that Novo Banco transfer roughly 25 million U.S. of the 2 billion directly to the Pan American Health Organization to pay for emergency medical supplies for the Venezuelan people. These supplies include polio vaccines, yellow fever medicine, and thousands of syringes to address a critical shortage in the country. The government of Venezuela directed Bondis to apply for a transfer of funds from its accounts in Novo Banco to the Pan-American Health Organization as of 22 July. These funds were temporarily frozen, but recently have been unblocked by Portuguese legal authorities, and yet Novo Banco has issued no response to the Venezuelan request. To talk more with us about this disturbing and criminal withholding of funds is Yvonne Hill, Vice Minister of Europe of the People's Power Ministry for Foreign Relations. Welcome, Yvonne. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with it. us. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked when I read this to our audience that we've got yet another case of, of, of a bank um, holding um, assets of Venezuela. And so we, of course, have to talk more about that. But I wonder if you could give us um, a brief history um, about Novo Banco, because they have a very controversial history and, and a very controversial current day ownership as well. So perhaps we can start with who is Novo Banco or what is Novo Banco? Hello, can you hear me? Good afternoon, good evening. Thank you for this interview. Novo Banco. Well, this is a story of a financial infamy of a political infamy, of a bank financial structure that decided to break with its commitment of protecting the resources that were deposited there based on ideological reasons. This is a Portuguese bank, as you well explained that was born after the bankruptcy of the Espiritu Santo Bank. The Espiritu Santo Bank it was a bank that due to mismanagement and corruption issues went bankrupt, leaving 
thousands of uh, people without access to their funds. And among them, many Venezuelan institutions that are present in Portugal. Back then, the Hugo Chavez uh, government had started a cooperation agreement with Portugal because Portugal was undergoing a period of uh, economic instability and required to reactivate its industry. So many projects took place in the fields of technology, of a computer for children, the so-called Canaimitas, within the framework of the Magallanes project, uh, oil tankers and other ships were ordered by Venezuela to Portugal. So there was an intense activity of cooperation between the two nations. And for that purpose, several funds were sent to Portuguese institutions and among them, the Banco do Espírito Santo and so funds from the Fondem and Banco X and PDVSA were sent to Portugal. So many Venezuelan institutions sent funds to Portugal because there was a very close uh, cooperation activity between the Venezuelan institutions and Portuguese institutions. So out of the bankruptcy of uh, the Espiritu Santo Bank, Venezuela suffered several losses and Novo Banco was born. So several financial operations were migrated and at the beginning things worked well and the Portuguese institutions provided a timely response and guaranteed the funds deposited by the Venezuelan institutions. But after the attack within the framework of the unilateral coercive measures started and the Donald Trump attacks against the Venezuelan state and a process of fund freezing starts at Novo Banco. Even a process of uh, slowing down the financial transactions of the Venezuelan government to pay medical supplies and technologies and to honor the commitments with the Portuguese companies. So a process of sabotage starts against Venezuelan transactions in Novo Banco which also combines by a purchase of shares of Novo Banco by a United States equity fund. And the situation worsens even more with the self-proclaimed as president of a Venezuelan congressman that before TV cameras this person decided to self-proclaim himself as a president of uh, Venezuela and after that the government of the United States 
and uh, specifically Trump's administration recognizes him as president, deciding to ignore the political will of Venezuelans that have elected President Maduro. And after that, in the European Union, they decided to follow the actions of the U.S., maybe afraid of this imposition made by Donald Trump. So in Europe, they started to uh, ignore the government uh, of Venezuela and to recognize this puppet of the U.S. that they didn't even know the name. After this, this uh, Novo Banco takes advantage of the situation and decides to uh, not recognize uh, the ownership of the Venezuelan institutions on the deposits. Look, the account holders are Venezuelan institutions, it's not the government. So these funds and the deposits are not signed by President Maduro or a minister. No, these funds belong to public institutions of Venezuela, such as PDVSA, Fonden, Banco X, that have legitimate authorities that are even currently conducting successful transactions in Europe and doing trade in Europe. But Novo Banco said, well, since the Portuguese government does not know who is the president, we're going to freeze these uh, assets. So it's an infamy because the Portuguese government uh, recognizes the Venezuelan institutions such as uh, Banco X, uh, Bandes or PDVSA. And Venezuelan institutions have not been questioned. And the chairperson of PDVSA is the one to sign the document. So there are legal excuses they are used to, to freeze uh, Venezuelan assets. So, a discussion, a debate started between the board of directors of Novo Banco and the Portuguese government. When we were speaking to the Portuguese government, they were saying, well, this is a decision of the bank of the European Central Bank and of the regulations of the bank. And we were, were speaking to the board of directors of the bank. They said, well, I cannot do this because the Portuguese government is uh, telling me to do this or that. So we didn't know who was telling the truth. And we were receiving two completely different versions of reality. So the process evolved, we saw that uh, Guaido became a nefarious character uh, of our history and Novo Banco insisted in using excuses not to give us access to our resources and the last thing they said was that they were freezing these funds not because they didn't know who was the president because that, that argument cannot be sustained further. But they said that they didn't know what was the legal origin of these funds, which is clearly absurd, because the origin of these funds is 
basically that these funds were in the bank that went bankrupt after corruption issues, the Espiritu Santo Bank, and were transferred to Novo Banco. So it's impossible that Novo Banco that was born with these resources now are presenting these excuses with regards to the origin of the funds. So what we see here is a piracy operation, a theft operation, a confiscation of resources that belong to Venezuelans and that the board of directors of Novo Banco, following I don't know which instructions, insist to keep these uh, resources uh, frozen. The Venezuelan government has started legal action in the Portuguese uh, courts in Lisbon in order so that the rights over these uh, deposits can be uh, reestablished to the Venezuelan institutions so that the Venezuelan government is able to purchase medical supplies, medicines, and all the necessary equipment to combat the pandemic. So we're talking about 1,600 million euros deposited in Novo Banco in several accounts apart from the interests uh, obtained in the last year. So this money could help us to solve many of the issues that Venezuelans face and that uh, due to the denial of a financial institutions, we cannot have access to these resources. The most worrisome element of uh, this whole situation is the damage inflicted upon Venezuelans that cannot access to food or medicine or have to conduct uh, bigger efforts to access these uh, resources and also on the credibility of the capitalism because they, capitalism does not have clear rules and they don't follow capitalistic ethical principles because they simply don't exist. They act only following ideological reasons. Capitalism always says that the left uh, gives priority to pragmatism and ideology, but the reality shows otherwise. Capitalism does not follow clear rules for the protection of funds, and the same happens to us with the gold that was deposited in the United Kingdom. So there's no trust. No country in the world can trust in these uh, banks of Europe or the US because arbitrarily their funds can end up being confiscated by the incumbent uh, government just due to ideology reasons. So this is how serious the problem is and the negative precedent that might be created. We do hope and we have spoken about this with the legal Portuguese institutions and with the Portuguese government. We have emphasized that it's necessary to reestablish order, to reestablish trust, and so that uh, common sense can prevail, because this is incredible. How come you put money in a financial institution and then the next day when you go to the bank, the owner of the bank decides who's the owner of these resources without any legal grounds. So I think 
the first thing to do is to denounce before the world how irrational capitalism is when it comes to uh, deal with emerging countries' resources. They uh, have decided to steal this money due to ideological reasons. Yeah, it's a, it is a form of, of, of robbing a nation's wealth and piracy on the high seas and all forms of stolen assets. Um, I think our audience is probably most familiar with the case of the Venezuelan gold sitting in the Bank of London that um, the Bank of London will not repatriate to Venezuela. Uh, what sort of um, impact could the U.S. Treasury have, OFAC have, on the US, uh, Lone Star, the private U.S. private equity fund, if it releases funds? However, the funds are not designated to be released to Venezuela. The funds are supposed to go directly to the Pan American Health Organization in Brazil in the Brazilian currency. So there would be no... The funds would not in any way travel through Venezuela. It would go directly to Brazil in Brazilian currency. So how do, how do we work around this? We're talking about resources and assets that belong to Venezuelans that cannot be confiscated by a bank. And with this, I would like to make a brief introduction and to make clear that we have not considered the possibility of questioning who's the real owner of uh, these uh, resources. We are. And there are unexplainable situations derived from this. So we have uh, said that these resources are going to be used to pay vaccines against COVID and also to pay food we have said that these resources are necessary to uh, solve many of the problems we have faced. However, the Bolivarian government, regardless of this uh, situation, we have been able to uh, do our job. And fortunately, the Chavez government has created a diversified financial structure in order to successfully face uh, these type of threats. The critical issue here is that we are in a complicated situation of a pandemic. And as you well said, in other systems, these uh, threats have not been tackled, even counting with the resources, but in the case of Venezuela, even under the siege we are facing, we have been able to cope with these situations successfully. So part of the lack of uh, reasoning and the whole entanglement of this uh, Novobanco situation and its impact at the world and the regional level are indescriptable because these are situations derived from political lack of uh, reasoning of these uh, people. The bailout provided by the Portuguese government to this bank clearly surpassed 
the actual value of the bank and even the deposits in the bank. So on a frequent basis, the Portuguese government uh, provides bailout to this bank. So clearly, these U.S. Uh, owners of the bank are receiving a direct subsidy of the Portuguese government to keep it running. So capital has no borders. So how does this take place? And how, on the other side, the socialist uh, system that aims at protecting citizens is successful even with the lack of resources, but in the case of capitalism, but they want to get a hold of the resources of the people. This is a simple but a complex explanation at the same time. Capitalism does not protect people, just protects uh, elites and their capacity of creating more resources, of uh, robbing with impunity. Instead, the socialist system, even in the light of difficulties, looks forward to protecting people. And we are seeing this after the pandemic. We have seen that we continue to face difficulties, but we are scaling in the protection of people. The Venezuelan Bolivarian government has always uh, protected people, even if we have uh, undergone several uh, resources taken away from uh, us. But in the capitalism, there is a lack of equality. Thank you to Terry and Vice Minister Hill. To join the campaign to pressure Novo Banco to release the funds, visit www.codepink.org slash Novo Banco. That's N-O-V-O-B-A-N-C-O. Thank you so much for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Was not Iraq, but Iran.